This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Good evening and welcome to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health related news, including everything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to rid yourself of bad habits, and how to make sense of media reports about the latest research into the causes and potential new treatments for psychiatric illness, along the way better educating the general public about psychiatric illness and diagnosis and trying to reduce the stigma associated with them without the hype and distortion of other media sources and with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry. Well, welcome back to the show. Appreciate your tuning in. As always, this edition of Psychiatry Today was pre-recorded for air on 1-14-2015. So if you're listening in on America's web radio at 7 p.m., on that date, you're hearing it for the first time, and I appreciate your tuning it in. Also appreciate all of those of you who are playing back the podcast and those who download it from iTunes. Thanks again for listening. Hope that you've been feeling well mentally and emotionally. And we're going to start off tonight's show with an item that would be of very specific interest To those of you who are, I would say, 65 years of age and older, or those of you who have very close family members who are in that age group, Uh, yet another article about the fact that the elderly are overprescribed sedatives, sleeping pills, and anti-anxiety drugs, and... How dangerous this is, which of course is not news, but again, just more evidence of this. Doctors often prescribe potentially disabling tranquilizers to older Americans, particularly women, according to a new study. Nearly 12% of 80-year-old women back in 2008 used benzodiazepines, which is a class of sedatives and anti-anxiety drugs that the American Geriatrics Society says should generally be avoided in the elderly. Now, the benzodiazepines are a class of sedatives that include Xanax, uh, which uh, is sold under the generic name Alprazolam, Ativan, with the generic name Lorazepam, Valium, the generic name Diazepam. There are others like Librium, Cirax. It also includes sleeping pills like Dalmain, which is Florazepam, and Restoril, which is Timazepam. <clears throat> I also will add to this list The sleeping pills, Ambien and Lunesta, even though they are not benzodiazepines, they work in the brain 
on the same receptor complex that the benzodiazepines do. Uh, so while they're certainly not benzodiazepines in and of themselves, Ambien and Lunesta are very closely related to them. This study should be a call to action to think about why these medications are being prescribed so greatly in a very vulnerable group. These drugs have extremely dangerous side effects, including falls, delirium, and they've been linked to dementia. Data from 60% of United States retail pharmacies showed that more than 6% of men and almost 11% of women between the ages of 65 and 80 used benzodiazepines in 2008. Researchers reported their findings in their article in the journal JAMA Psychiatry. Now, almost one-third of older adults used the tranquilizers on a long-term basis for four months or more. Now, the more can be years. And I'm not just talking a few or several years. I'm talking one, two, or more decades. I myself have had patients come to see me in my practice, transferring their care to me either because They moved or their previous doctor moved or closed their practice or retired. And lo and behold, they've been on these benzodiazepines for 10, 20, even 30 years. They're only supposed to be used for short periods of time. So these very long-term use patterns are very worrisome, especially for older adults and particularly for women for whom they're prescribed more often, as we've heard. But if we look at the prescribing practices of doctors in the United States, there's a very different picture. Uh, As I've just explained to you, they're prescribed too often and too long. Benzodiazepines arguably could be considered effective for short-term treatment of anxiety, and sleep problems. Uh, I myself don't use them at all, even short term, in my patients. But they're risky and of questionable value for long-term use, especially in the elderly. In older people, research has shown that the benzodiazepines increase the risk of falls and they can impair thinking, memory, attention, mobility, and driving skills. Furthermore, long-term use can make it harder for people to stop taking the drugs. They often suffer dependence and withdrawal symptoms when the medications are discontinued. An editorial published in the journal along with the study again, that was a journal of AMA Psychiatry, suggests that benzodiazepines should perhaps be classed with dangerous addictive substances, limiting prescription duration and prohibiting refills. 
I think that's a fantastic idea. And there's a very recent example of another type of medication that was reclassified. <clears throat> Hydrocodone is now um, <clears throat> much harder to get. has to be a written prescription. Uh, quantities and refills are now much more limited. And I th think the same should be done with benzodiazepines because of their serious health consequences. <clears throat> they are far from safe. And one way to rein in over-prescribing benzodiazepines would be to allow only psychiatrists to write prescriptions for that. That according to one of the study authors. Now, I disagree with that. There are far too few psychiatrists, and it's much too difficult for all the patients who would need to see one of us to get to see one of us. Uh, not only are there too few of us, but there are even fewer who accept most insurance plans. Uh, I don't think that's practical whatsoever. The fact is, the vast majority of any type of psychiatric medications are prescribed by non-psychiatrists, whether it's the benzodiazepines or whether it's antidepressants. Now, the study found that primary care physicians wrote most of the prescriptions for older men and women. Psychiatrists only wrote 6% or less. <clears throat> uh, other suggestions for curbing benzodiazepine use? Lifestyle changes to promote better sleep and to ease anxiety. Uh, increase the use and promotion of non pharmacological treatments for sleep problems and anxiety. <clears throat> Multiple studies have found that behavioral interventions work better in the long run than medications when it comes to the treatment of trouble sleeping. Advising patients to increase their exercise, increase their exposure to light early in the day, and to learn better sleep hygiene in terms of uh, winding down toward the end of the day, this would go a long way to help alleviating sleep problems. Along with better attention to overall medical condition, optimum treatment of other medical problems, and much better attention to looking at the long list of medications that many older people take, and what are their side effects? And what are their interactions? And how could this affect their difficulty sleeping? <clears throat> some examples of some very, very basic elements of sleep hygiene and behavioral modifications to help facilitate sleep, uh, which, by the way, I've talked about many times on the show, include restricting caffeine after about lunchtime or so. <clears throat> um, increasing exposure to light early in the morning, exercise, and avoiding or limiting naps, and especially making sure the naps are not too late in the afternoon. <clears throat> well, again, this latest study adds to the drumbeat that benzodiazepines are dangerous drugs for the elderly 
again, they increase the risk of dementia, falls, and other serious complications, uh, <clears throat> yet they continue to be widely prescribed. Doctors are reluctant to take the difficult but necessary step to say, you know what, you may have been on this for many, many years, but it's not appropriate, it's not safe, and you need to come off this medication because it is dangerous and unhealthy for you. Um, it is a lot more difficult for a doctor to confront a patient and their family with that information than it is to say, well, that's too difficult and too much trouble. I'm just going to continue the medication that this person has been on for years rather than confront the issue in a difficult way. I personally think that's a shame. My philosophy is safety first. And those medicines have no place in the elderly patient. We're going to take our first commercial break. We'll be right back with more mental health-related news. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is Dr. George from Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center. Do you have problems with sinus pain and pressure? Do other people smell things that you don't? Have you lost the joy in eating because food just doesn't taste like it used to? Is your nose always stuffy no matter what you do? Maybe you have sinus or nasal polyps, a chronic sinus infection, or allergies that are either undertreated or have never been treated at all. At Peachtree ENT Center, we use state-of-the-art equipment so you can see the problem. You'll be a partner in your care, and together we will decide the course of treatment because we believe in old-fashioned medicine where we take the time to fix the problem, not just medicate the symptoms. We specialize in minimally invasive balloon dilation sinus surgery, correction of a nasal septal deviation, and turbinate reduction surgery that can be done in the office, getting you back to work the next day. And you can rest assured that all options will be discussed before surgery is recommended because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. If you'd like to make an appointment, call 404-591-9100 or reach us on the web at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. In 2009, the membership organization Docs for Patient Care was founded. People all around the country wanted to participate in the efforts of this group, and they wanted to join, but they were unable to do so unless they were physicians. It's for this reason that the Docs for Patient Care Foundation was created. Now, everyone can join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. While you're at your computer, please go to www.docs4patientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docs4patientcarefoundation.org and make a tax-deductible donation and join the fight along with us. Thank you. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, psychiatrist Dr. Scott Bay. Next up on tonight's show, some very interesting research about jealousy and specifically the impact of sexual versus emotional infidelity. Wow, this is uh, sort of a, a stirring topic, right? Yes, yeah, unfortunately, infidelity is all too common. Uh, and what do we really know about how different constituencies react to learning that their partner has been unfaithful to them and in different ways. 
Well, let's examine this research and see what you think. The authors feel that it's the largest study to date on infidelity. At Chapman University, they've learned that men and women are different when it comes to feeling jealous. In a poll of nearly 64,000 Americans, the study provides the first large-scale examination of gender and sexual orientation differences in response to potential sexual versus emotional infidelity in United States adults. According to the findings, heterosexual men were more likely than heterosexual women to be most upset by sexual infidelity, 54% of men versus 35% of women, and less likely than heterosexual women to be most upset by emotional infidelity, 46% of men versus 65% of women. Participants imagined what would upset them more. Their partners having sex with someone else, but not falling in love with them, which I guess is the author's definition of sexual infidelity, or their partners falling in love with someone else, but not having sex with them, which is considered emotional infidelity. Consistent with the evolutionary perspective, heterosexual men were more likely than heterosexual women to be upset by sexual infidelity and less likely than heterosexual women to be upset by emotional infidelity. Bisexual men and women did not differ significantly. Gay men and lesbian women also did not differ. Sexual and emotional infidelity can cause harm to both men and women, including leading to broken hearts, relationships coming to an abrupt and painful end, abandonment, partner violence, and loss of resources when these resources are invested into affair partners. The responses of men and women to the threat of infidelity range from intense pangs of jealousy to elaborate displays of attention to woo their partner back. Jealousy can also trigger harmful and violent behavior, so it is important to understand what are the most potent triggers of jealousy. The evolutionary perspective notes that men face a problem that women never face, paternal uncertainty. They never know if their child is genetically related to them. There is always a chance the child could have been fathered by another man. Hence, they're being <clears throat> most upset about sexual infidelity. In contrast, women never face the problem of maternal uncertainty, of course. Thus, while it is expected that both men and women experience sexual jealousy, men may exhibit particularly heightened responses 
compared with women. Further, while women do not face maternal uncertainty, they risk the potential loss of resources and commitment from partners if they channel their investment to another mate. Sociocultural perspectives have generally claimed that no difference would be expected between men and women. However, this study notes that men are socialized to be masculine, which includes having great sexual prowess. If a man's partner commits sexual infidelity, this brings into question his sexual prowess and therefore threatens his masculinity, which leads him to react more negatively to his partner committing sexual rather than emotional infidelity. In contrast, women are taught to think relationally and to be the emotional nurturers in a relationship. If their partner commits emotional infidelity, this may threaten her sense of self more so than if her partner commits sexual infidelity. Consistent with evolutionary perspective, one's reaction to sexual versus emotional infidelity is likely shaped by environmental and personal factors. This gender difference emerged across age groups, income levels, history of being cheated on, history of being unfaithful, relationship type, and length. Factors such as age, income, and whether people had children were unrelated to upset over sexual versus emotional infidelity. However, younger participants were notably more upset by sexual infidelity than older participants. A review of ethnographic accounts from 16 societies found that infidelity was the most common cause of marital dissolution. A meta-analysis of 50 studies, that is combining the data from 50 different studies, found that 34% of men and 24% of women have engaged in extramarital sexual activities. Infidelity in dating relationships, as you might expect, is even higher. The survey was done using a total of almost 64,000 participants between the ages of 18 to 65. On average, the participants were in their late 30s. And for those of you who are interested to delve into the research further, this paper appears in the journal Archives of Sexual Behavior. Well, there you have it. An interesting take on relationships, infidelity, jealousy, and how the two genders react to different types of infidelity. Hope that's not been an issue for you. All right, now, next up on tonight's show, we'll get to something admittedly a little bit more practical, or at least it was intended to be that way. Do you suffer from being late all the time? Is it a big struggle for you to get places on time and 
And do you have that reputation as always being late? Well, <clears throat> this article purportedly helps people with this problem to do better. And I decided I would go ahead and go over it with you on the air in the hopes that it might be helpful to some of you. Because I know this is a problem that some people have, but it's called Finally You Can Be On Time. And it says, here's how to stop being chronically late. Do your friends tell you to meet them a half hour earlier than you're supposed to, fully expecting you to be late? While you might think that tardiness is simply ingrained in your personality, or even genetic, it is a habit that is possible to break. Well, you're busy and it's not like you're intentionally losing track of the time. But being late not only causes unnecessary stress, it can give you a bad reputation, making people feel as if they can't rely on you. And it can have negative effects on your relationships, both personal and professional. In a study published in the European Journal of Work and Organizational Psychology, participants responded negatively to people who were late to a meeting, saying that they felt disrespected and that they had perceived the late person as rude. Now, to be sure, that was related to a work setting, but of course, this affects people in social settings as well. Now, uh, like any compulsive behavior, it's difficult to make a sudden change in the tendency to be late. Most people really hate being late and have tried many times to fix it. Uh, there is an author who was quoted for the article, Diana Delonzor, D-E and capital L-O-N-Z-O-R. She is a management consultant and wrote a book called Never Be Late Again. Punctual people misunderstand. They think you're doing it as a control thing, or that you're selfish or inconsiderate. But it really is a much more complex problem than it seems. So there are some steps that you can take to break the always late habit, according to Ms. Delonzor. For instance, that the first steps involve recognizing that you have a problem and figuring out why you're always late. Then you need to decide to make the change, even letting others know about your goals so they can keep you accountable. I personally find that very important when it comes to changing any type of habit or making any behavioral change. Tell others close to you about it. It provides a significant amount of accountability, obviously, and that's going to make it more likely that you're going to actually change that behavior. If you find that you're always late because you feel anxious about arriving at your destination too early, one strategy is to go there prepared with something engrossing and engaging that you can do to while away the time. And that way you won't have to worry about well, what do I do if I get there too early? I'll just be bored. Hmm. 
Well, we're going to take another commercial break here, and hopefully we won't be late coming back from that to give you more tips on how to stop being late. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. PrivateHealthCareExchanges.com Have you checked out the only online guide where employers, health plans, brokers, and consultants can navigate private exchange and defined contribution markets? Browse PrivateHealthCareExchanges.com today. The emergence of private health insurance exchanges represents perhaps the most significant shift in how Americans purchase health benefits in years. As employers move their employee population into private exchanges, this trend is on a growth projection into the 2015 benefit year and beyond, according to research published by Allegis Technologies. Visit PrivateHealthCareExchanges.com today to browse our national searchable directory and for Healthcare Exchange Solutions magazine and newsletter. Be sure to submit your listing for inclusion in this groundbreaking guide at www.PrivateHealthCareExchanges.com. That's www.PrivateHealthCareExchanges.com. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. This is America's WebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Once again, your host, psychiatrist, Dr. Scott Bay. We're talking about how to break the habit of being late so you can finally be on time. Now, if you're always late because you're trying to do just one more thing before heading out the door and you are sure you have enough time to do that. One expert advises, make it a point to just leave on time. Hmm. I'm not so sure that advice is helpful to someone who does that. They're late because they can't just leave on time because they think they have more time to do something. So I don't find that advice particularly helpful. My advice to someone who has that habit of just doing one more thing would be to, before when they make um, an appointment to be somewhere, uh, just decide that, okay, how long realistically will it take to get there, add 10 more minutes, then set an alarm, and no matter what they're doing, they'll have to stop what they're doing and leave at the time they're going to go. And if you're worried that you're going to forget what you were doing, that when you interrupted yourself, just jot it down on a little piece of paper quickly and go out the door. Now, is this going to be an instant fix? Is it going to be easy for everyone? No, of course not. There's no such thing for breaking any bad habit. And whether it's that little advice I gave you or whatever you find in uh, the expert's book, 
Never Be Late Again by Diana Delonzor. It doesn't matter. You're not going to fix something easily, quickly, the first try. Changing a bad habit like this takes time. Now, what about always being late because you underestimate how much time it takes to get from point A to point B? Well, another expert recommends a good strategy is to do a walkthrough between your destinations to get an accurate gauge of how long your commute really is. Ultimately, realize that you won't become perfectly punctual overnight. As I was saying, the habit of lateness is like any other habit. Even when you think you've finally broken the pattern, you'll find yourself backsliding. Be patient with yourself. Well, I have to say, I think the article was definitely a disappointment. Uh, maybe if you try uh, one of the books, you know, that might be helpful. Uh, the, another one they mentioned in the article was Time Management from the Inside Out by Julie Morgenstern. And, uh, you know, I think like anything else, uh, the one practical thing the article says that I think is useful is realizing you have a problem and summoning up the motivation to want to fix it. And take a good, long, hard look at yourself and figure out what are the reasons why this is always happening and decide to make changes. And then the other very, very useful practical advice is to be patient with yourself and it takes time to affect behavioral change. But I think the key strategies are, I mean, is it practical to do a walkthrough to pre-take your trip where you're going just to get the time right? No, of course not, not to mention the waste in gas. Uh, but I think an initial useful strategy is, you know, when you think you've judged how much time it's going to take, tack on another 10, maybe even 15 minutes. And then you just have to have the self-discipline and motivation to force yourself to stop what you're doing at that deadline. No, you can't do one more thing. You're wrong. You can't do it. And then just leave when it's time to leave. This is not an easy thing to do, right? But if the, the key is realizing what's wrong and deciding to put the effort into it. It is difficult. It takes effort. Uh, no fixing a bad habit comes easily. All right, well, speaking of bad habits, this next article we're going to talk about has to do with drinking. And a very interesting way that some researchers are trying to study it. Some <clears throat> scientists are testing an anti-drinking drug with the help of a fake bar. The tequila sure looks real. So do the beer taps, but inside the hospital at the National Institutes of Health, researchers are testing a possible new treatment to help heavy drinkers cut back using a replica of a fully stocked bar. Their idea, sitting in the dimly lit bar laboratory, should cue the volunteers' brains to crave a drink and help determine if the experimental pill counters that urge. True, there's no 
telltale skunky bar odor, and the bottles are filled with colored water. The real alcohol is locked in the hospital pharmacy, ready to send over for the extra temptation of smell, and to test how safe the drug is if people drink anyway. <clears throat> Researcher, uh, the researchers claim their goal is to create almost a real-world environment, but to control it very strictly. They're testing how a hormone named ghrelin that sparks people's appetite for food also affects their desire for alcohol, and if blocking it might help. Amid all the New Year's resolutions to quit drinking, alcohol use disorders affect about 17 million Americans, and only a small fraction receive treatment. There's no one-size-fits-all therapy, and the National Institutes of Health is spurring a hunt for new medications that target the brain's addiction cycle in different ways, and to find out which options work best in which drinkers. Alcoholics come in many forms. The National Institute of Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, otherwise known as NIAAA, is a division of the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, and the NIAAA has published new online guides explaining who's at risk for alcoholism and what can help. Now, if you had doubts or questions about yourself and your drinking or it has to do with someone you're close to, you can look up these guides at www.niaa.nih.gov. Again, that's www.niaa.nih.gov. It stands for National Institute of Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, NIH, National Institutes of Health. Now, what is the limit? Well, the NIAAA says low-risk drinking means no more than four drinks in any single day and no more than 14 in a week for men, no more than three drinks a day and seven a week for women. So that means binge drinking is defined as five or more for, in a day for a man, four or more in a day for a, for a woman. <clears throat> Genes play a role in who's vulnerable to crossing the line into alcohol abuse. There is a very strong genetic component to alcoholism, and the pattern that I've observed the most frequently over the years in my practice of psychiatry is that you can track alcoholism right through the males in a family tree. It is so prevalent. Granddad to dad to grandson, right on down the line. Now, there are also environmental factors, such as getting used to drinking a certain amount, not to mention how your own brain's circuitry adapts. Treatment can range from inpatient rehab and 12-step programs, such as Alcoholics Anonymous, to behavioral therapy and the few medications that are available today. A recent review for the Agency of Healthcare Research and Quality, 
estimated that less than a third of people who need treatment get it. And of those, less than 10% receive medications as part of their treatment for their alcoholism. There are three drugs that are approved by the Food and Drug Administration to treat alcohol abuse. One, naltrexone, blocks alcohol's feel-good sensation by targeting receptors in the brain's reward system if people harbor a particular gene. The anti-craving pill acamprosate, which used to be sold under the brand name Compral, appears to calm stress-related brain chemicals in certain people. And the older drug, Antabuse, works differently, triggering nausea and other extremely aversive symptoms if people drink while taking it. Recent research suggests a handful of drugs used for other disorders also show promise. Scientists at the Scripps Research Institute found the epilepsy drug gabapentin, sold under the brand name Neurontin, reduces relapse in drinkers who'd recently quit and improved, that is, reduced cravings, also improved mood and sleep by targeting an emotion-related brain chemical. <clears throat> I'm sure they mean the brain chemical GABA. A study by the NIAAA and five different medical centers found that the anti-smoking drug Chantix may also help alcohol addiction by reducing heavy drinkers' cravings. Not really so surprising when you realize that the final common pathway in the brain, as it were, for any addictive substance is the same, whether you're talking about nicotine, alcohol, cocaine, what have you. And University of Pennsylvania researchers found that the epilepsy drug topiramate formerly sold under the brand name Topamax, helped heavy drinkers cut back if they have a particular gene variation, mostly found in people of European descent. <clears throat> you may be familiar with Topamax. It's not only prescribed for epilepsy, it's commonly prescribed for migraine headaches as well. So there are several options out there, but not many people are prescribed them. All right, we're going to take one more commercial break. We'll come back and finish up talking about how these researchers help that their fake bar will help improve research into treating alcohol addiction. And uh, we'll have that and more when we return. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is Dr. George from Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center. We've won patient care awards and have the highest patient recommendations because I believe in practicing medicine the old-fashioned way. Practicing good medicine is based in listening to the patient and making a care plan that is individualized. The best medical care is given when there is a strong doctor-patient relationship built on mutual trust and respect. At Peachtree ENT Center, we believe in taking care of the whole patient because healing is more than writing a prescription. Whether you have problems hearing or your child has frequent throat infections, from the time you call our office and speak to a real person, you will be treated as an individual, not an ailment. During your visit, you will not be rushed, and all of your questions will be answered. And when possible, I will recommend natural treatments to fix the problem. If surgery is recommended, cost-effective, minimally invasive treatment for snoring, sleep apnea, or sinus problems will be offered because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. If you'd like to make an appointment, call 
591-9100 or reach us on the web at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. Today's consumers find themselves faced with a greater variety of choices than ever before, both in the food they eat and the information they receive about that food. Feedstuff's Food Link was created to provide you with a balanced source of information for making decisions about your family's balanced diet. Visit feedstuffsfoodlink.com to learn about your food directly from the source, the people who work every day to provide it. Feedstuffsfoodlink.com, connecting farm to fork. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. This is America's WebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, psychiatrist Dr. Scott Bay. We're talking about some researchers at the National Institutes of Health who are working on a drug that will help someone stop drinking heavily. Now, in this bar lab that they created, which is only one of about a dozen versions around the country, the focus of their research is on ghrelin. That's G-H-R-E-L-I-N. It's a hormone produced in the stomach that controls appetite through receptors in the brain. It turns out there's overlap between receptors that fuel overeating and alcohol craving in the brain's reward system. In a study published this past fall, the team gave 45 heavy-drinking volunteers different doses of ghrelin, and their urge to drink rose along with the extra hormone. Now they are testing whether blocking ghrelin's action also blocks those cravings. Using an experimental Pfizer drug originally developed for diabetes but never sold. The main goal of this first step study is to ensure mixing alcohol with the drug is safe because after all these people are going to be drinking. But researchers also measure cravings as volunteers hooked to a blood pressure monitor in the tiny bar lab smell a favorite drink. Initial safety results are expected this spring. Now, this part really grabbed me. Their hope is that down the line, they might be able to do a simple blood test that tells you if you will be a naltrexone person, an acamprosate person, or a ghrelin person. Now, what that means is... A genetic test, not just simply a blood test, but by looking at someone's genetic profile, they hope to be able to determine which of the various different medications designed to treat alcoholism will be effective for a given person based on their genetic profile. There is already some research to document this where it concerns a camprosate. So, While this sounds 
really like some pie-in-the-sky dream, there is already some progress in this direction. <clears throat> My concern about this research, though, you know, even though the article is making such a big deal out of this fake bar in the research laboratory, which, you know, that's really, I think, incidental to the main goal of the research, which is to see what happens to alcohol cravings if you manipulate ghrelin levels. Is this drug that they're using to lower ghrelin levels? Okay, it was originally developed for diabetes by Pfizer, but never sold. Now, Pfizer is a huge pharmaceutical company. If they had a good drug for diabetes, it should have gone on the market and sold. So that raises the question, why didn't it? Well, one of the main reasons why a drug that a big company like Pfizer is trying to bring to the market never gets sold is because late in the life of the clinical trials of the drug, safety issues come to light. Well, if that's the case, it wasn't deemed safe enough to come to market for diabetes. How are these researchers going to convince the Food and Drug Administration that, well, it wasn't safe enough for diabetics, but when it comes to decreasing cravings for alcohol, we think you should approve it. Unfortunately, that's not likely to happen. <clears throat> the other thing is that there certainly may be unintended consequences of such manipulation of ghrelin levels. Um, again, it controls appetite. You know, so what consequences uh, are there going to be in terms of the effects of the overall metabolism <clears throat> on the people taking this drug? Well, you know, a lot of questions raised by this. Uh, and again, you know, I guess they deserve some credit for if you're testing something that you hope will decrease cravings for drinking in alcoholics, you do want to create an environment that would trigger those cravings and see what happens. All right. So that's the, the big deal about the experimental lab. <clears throat> but I think. One of the main reasons I wanted to talk to you about this article is that while who knows if anything will come from this experimental drug, there are these medications that are already approved for alcoholism in some cases and others that are, while not approved for alcoholism, are on the market and are being used for alcoholism even though they're approved officially for other uses. So <clears throat> I want to review those and encourage those of you who are trying to recover from alcoholism and may have had some trouble to ask your doctor about these medication options. And I'll go over them in the order in which they were approved. Antabuse has been around for decades. Uh, it's rather a pretty difficult approach. Uh, you're supposed to take that every day. And if you drink while you're on that, you become extremely ill. Uh, have severe flushing, nausea, vomiting. And um, it's not something to be taken lightly. In It's exceedingly rare, but in a worst-case scenario, the antabuse-alcohol interaction could be fatal. So that's kind of an aversive therapy. You know if you're taking this stuff on a daily basis and you have it in your system, 
you best not drink if you don't want to become violently ill. And then came naltrexone, okay, which is an anti-craving drug. And it was originally sold under the brand name Revia. There was a generic for it, so it's much less expensive. Um, <clears throat> and you have to take it every day for it to be effective, but it's not that you can't drink while taking it. It's just supposed to decrease cravings for drinking. The common side effects in naltrexone, nausea, and sleepiness. Best way to get around these issues is to take it in the evening after supper. And then there's a camprosate, which was first sold under the brand name Campral. And this is a drug that's also designed to decrease cravings for drinking. Both naltrexone and acamprosate are really better for someone who's otherwise putting in a very strong effort to remain sober. Uh, for example, going to Alcoholics Anonymous meetings uh, and or a structured treatment program, but still struggling with cravings, maybe having some slips with alcohol. It's a difficult regimen to stick to. Acamprosate is two tablets three times a day. And, uh, you know, so that's a difficult regimen for anyone to stick to. Um, it, I have on uh, several occasions when I've prescribed it to patients, tried to streamline that and simplify it by having them just take three tablets twice a day, which is still not easy, but easier than two tablets three times a day. I cannot recommend that to anyone listening. I'm just saying that's something I've done with my patients just to make it a tad more user-friendly. It's fairly mild side effect-wise, maybe some headache, maybe some stomach upset, very effective. <clears throat> and then we have the medicines that, while we know work, are not officially approved. And just to go over those again, you have... Gabapentin, uh, formerly sold under the brand name Neurontin, um, it is sometimes effective only once a day, but generally speaking, needs to be prescribed at least twice, if not three times a day. Um, side effects include slight tiredness or sleepiness, maybe some trouble with thinking or memory, and occasionally you'll even see weight gain. It's not a frequent problem, but it does come up. Um, in general, it's quite a benign drug. Its action is only a matter of several hours, and it's flushed out of the kidneys. Uh, very little changed from how you take it, um, and uh, there's negligible drug interactions if you're on other medications. <clears throat> and then there's, uh, along the same lines, another anti-epileptic drug that's used for other purposes, like migraine headaches, topiramate formerly known under the brand name Topamax. Now, this has the opposite effect on weight. It causes decreased appetite and weight loss, um, but it can also be even tougher on concentration, memory, you know, even sometimes uh, causing confusion, such that it, it has been derisively called Dopamax uh, instead of Topamax at times. And <clears throat> generally speaking, it's effective uh, only once a day, occasionally has to be taken twice a day. And last but not least, and this is very, very recent, the anti-smoking drug Chantix may block 
heavy drinkers' cravings. Um, Chantix, unlike everything else we've talked about, is not available in a generic. It is extremely expensive, and even smokers uh, balk at, at the price, even though I always tell them, look, how much is a pack of cigarettes now, and you're going to complain about how much Chantix costs? But uh, in any case, um, you know, it's kind of um, hard to get people to pay for that. Insurance, generally speaking, does not cover it, and they surely wouldn't cover it if they weren't certain that it was being prescribed for smoking cessation in particular, um, that it was being prescribed off-label for alcohol abuse. Uh, <clears throat> the dose has to be taken twice a day, and for the first a uh, few weeks you ramp up very, very small dose and then the maintenance dose after that. And side effects are pretty notorious for nausea and nightmares. Uh, at the very least, extremely vivid dreams and quite commonly nightmares. Now, there have been a lot of warnings about Chantix in terms of thoughts of suicide, but all anticonvulsant drugs carry those warnings too, such as uh, gabapentin and uh, topiramate. Um, sometimes people get extremely irritable and depressed on Chantix, but even though all the evidence says it has nothing to do with quitting smoking, uh, in my opinion, I think that's some of the factors. So it's hard to know if people using it um, as an aid to quitting drinking would also have those effects. I think it should be considered a primary choice, a choice uh, for a medication option, not enough known about it. Well, that's going to do it for tonight's show. I hope till we get together next week, you have a wonderful, stress-free week. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.